Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater, and this midnight I will tell you the tale of the Whitechapel Women, Part 3. Content Warning This episode contains sometimes graphic descriptions of violent acts committed against women. In every instance, I will be quoting verbatim from primary source materials and nothing else. If you wish to fast forward through these descriptions, I invite you to do so. I include them not for sensationalism, but because they are an integral part of the truth. On September 29th, 1888, two days after the Central News Agency received the infamous Dear Boss letter that first gave the Whitechapel murderer the immortal name of Jack the Ripper, a poem appeared in the latest issue of the popular British magazine Punch. The poem was accompanied by an illustration drawn by an artist named John Tenniel, who is most famous today for illustrating the first edition of Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Tenniel's indelible illustration depicts a grotesque robed phantom with a howling black mouth haunting a dark east end street. The ghoul carries a large and very sharp butcher knife raised in one of its skeletal claw-like hands. Written on the phantom's hood above its terrifying Defyingly wide open eyes is one word crime. The most often quoted portion of the Nemesis of Neglect poem is the final stanza. Dank roofs, dark entries, Closely clustered walls, murder-inviting nooks, death-reeking gutters, a boding voice from your foul chaos calls. When will men heed the warning that it utters? There floats a phantom on the slum's foul air, shaping to eyes which have the gift of seeing into the specter of that loathly air. Face it, 
For vain is fleeting, red-handed, ruthless, furtive, unerect. Tis murderous crime, the nemesis of neglect. However, it is an earlier portion of the poem that haunts me and seems much more relevant as I investigate and tell the important and all too often forgotten stories of these long dead women. It will not be forgotten. It will find a voice like the volcano and will scatter such hideous wreck among us, deaf and blind, as all our sheltering shams shall rend and shatter. Elizabeth Gustav Dotter was born on November 27, 1843, on a small farm in the parish of Torslanda, north of the city of Gothenburg in Sweden. Her parents were Gustav Eriksson and Beata Karlsdotter. Elizabeth was baptized on December 5th, 1843. Elizabeth was the second born of four children in the family. Her elder sister was Anna Christina, born in 1840. And then Elizabeth had two younger brothers, Carl Bernard, born in 1858 in 1848, and Cervantes, born in 1851. Like many of the victims of the Whitechapel murderer, we do not know much about Elizabeth's childhood and early life. What little we do know is related to her religious instruction she is registered in, catech in catechism classes at her local Catholic church in 1845, 1848, 1851, and 1854. Elizabeth Daughter was confirmed as a Catholic at her local church in Torslanda, Sweden in 1859 when she was 16 years old. Church records state that her knowledge of the scriptures was excellent. A year later, in 1860, Elizabeth applied for permission to move to the nearby city of Gothenburg, which was granted 
on October 25, 1860. The official documentation states that her behavior was good and that her religious knowledge was extensive. Between October 25, 1860 and February 1861, Elizabeth's life is unknown. But by February 1861, Elizabeth was employed in domestic service as a maid in a respectable household. She stayed in her position there for three years until February 1864. The reason for her dismissal from domestic service is not known. But after that happened, Elizabeth's life began to fall apart. On August 25th, 1864, Elizabeth's mother, Beata, died. The next month, September 1864, Elizabeth discovered she was pregnant. On April 4, 1865, Elizabeth visited a hospital for the homeless in the nearby village of Kurhuset and was diagnosed with gentle warts. On April 21, 1865, Elizabeth gives birth to a stillborn baby girl. On August 30, 1865, Elizabeth returns to the hospital in Kurhuset. She is diagnosed with primary syphilis and receives medical treatment. On September 23, 1865, Elizabeth is released from the hospital. On October 17, 1865, Elizabeth is arrested by the police for practicing sex work. She is sent back to Kurhuset. On November 1, 1865, Elizabeth is released from Kurhuset with a clean bill of health. Elizabeth is marked forever in the official police record of Sweden as, quote, a professional prostitute. On November 5th, 1865, Elizabeth obtains employment as a maid by a woman named Maria Wisner. Records show that Maria Wisner employed an extraordinary number of maids, suggesting to some historians that she may actually have been running a brothel. We don't know for sure. In December 1866, Elizabeth inherits 65 Swedish krona from her mother's estate, a sum of money large enough to allow Elizabeth to immigrate 
to England. She leaves Sweden for good on Wednesday, February 7th, 1866. On July 3rd, 1866, Elizabeth is registered as an unmarried woman with the Swedish church in the East End of London. The following three years of Elizabeth's life are a blank in the historical record we have left. But on March 7th, 1869, Elizabeth Gustav Dotter, 25 years old, married a carpenter named John Stride, who was 38 years old. After they married, Elizabeth and John Stride opened a coffee shop together on Upper North Street. Their business was good enough for them to move to a larger location on Poplar Street. For reasons we do not know, Elizabeth and John Stride sold their coffee shop business to a man named John Dale in 1875. Elizabeth Stride's next few years are again a blank as far as we now know. She appears next in the historical record on March 21st, 1877, when she appears before a magistrate and is forced by police to enter the Poplar Workhouse. We do not know why. In January 1879, Elizabeth receives financial aid from the Swedish church due to her husband, John Stride, being ill. We do not know what his illness was, but he was still suffering from it six years later. In August 1884, John Stride was sent from the Poplar Workhouse to the Stepney Sick Asylum in Whitechapel. On October 24, 1884, John Stride died of heart disease, leaving Elizabeth a widow. There is evidence that their marriage had fallen apart three years later by 1881, since Elizabeth is on record as living apart from John Stride in a common lodging house at 32 Flower and Dean Street, considered to be one of the worst slums of Whitechapel. After her husband died, Elizabeth Stride began to drink heavily and is supposed to have gone back to sex work to earn money to survive, as well as doing small jobs of sewing. In Whitechapel, 
Her nickname was Long Liz, perhaps due to her height of five feet five inches, or as a play on her last name, Stride, being a long step. Her fellow lodgers at Flower and Dean Street described her as, quote, a quiet woman who would do a good turn for anyone. However, she was frequently brought before the magistrate for being drunk and disorderly in public and for soliciting clients as a prostitute. Elizabeth Stride often told people that her husband and all her nine children had died in the 1878 disaster of the Princess Alice, a ship that collided with another vessel and was sliced in half. Only 69 of the 700 passengers aboard the Princess Alice were pulled from the Thames alive. And the London newspapers called it, quote, one of the most fearful disasters of modern times. Elizabeth said that she lost all the teeth in her lower left jaw from being kicked in the face while she climbed the ship's mast in order to survive. This story was a lie. Elizabeth Stride's husband died years later in 1884, and after the stillborn girl she gave birth to in her youth, Elizabeth never had any more children. Her missing teeth rotted out due to her alcoholism, but she told the story of her tragedy aboard the Princess Alice over and over and over and over again for the rest of her life, likely to gain sympathy and money from strangers and to receive occasional aid from the Swedish church. Perhaps Elizabeth needed to believe it to keep on going, to face another day in Whitechapel. Perhaps she told that story to so many people so they would be able to see the depth of her suffering and loss and pain without judging her for the life she was really living. In 1885, a year after her husband's death, Elizabeth Stride is living with a man named Michael Kidney. Their relationship is described as stormy. After her death, Michael Kidney estimated they had been apart for about five months throughout the three years they had lived together. 
Kidney testified, quote, It was drink that made her go away. She always returned without me going after her. I think she liked me better than any other man. In the final twenty months of her life, Elizabeth Stride appeared before the magistrate eight times for public drunken and disorderly conduct and for prostitution. Michael Kidney objected to Elizabeth doing sex work and was physically abusive to her when he found out. On April 25, 1887, Elizabeth formally accused Michael Kidney of assault and domestic violence. However, Elizabeth did not turn up in court to carry through with the prosecution, so the case was dropped. On September 25, 1888, Elizabeth Stride and Michael Kidney broke up for good. He never saw her alive again. On September 25th, 1888, Martha Tabram, Mary Ann Nichols, and Annie Chapman have all been murdered. On the night of September 27th, 1888, a man named Dr. Thomas Bernardo, a street preacher in Whitechapel, visits the Doss House at 32 Flower and Dean Street. He later writes to the Times, saying, quote, in the kitchen on number 32 there were many persons, some of them being girls and women of the same unhappy class as to which poor Elizabeth Stride belonged. The company soon recognized me, and the conversations turned upon the previous murders. The female inmates of the kitchen seemed thoroughly frightened at the dangers to which they were presumably exposed. One poor creature, who had evidently been drinking, exclaimed somewhat bitterly to the following effect, We're all up to no good, and no one cares what becomes of us. Perhaps some of us will be killed next. And then she added, If anybody had helped us, Long ago, we would never have come to this. I have since visited the mortuary in which were lying the remains of the poor woman's stride, and I at once recognized her as one of those who stood around me in the kitchen of the common lodging house on the occasion of my last visit. Anne Mill, a bedmaker at the Flower and Dean Lodging House, said that Elizabeth Stride, quote, worked when she could get work, 
When she could get no work, she had to do the best she could for her living. But a better-hearted, more good-natured, neater and cleaner woman never lived. On Saturday, September 29th, 1888. Whitechapel is washed in rain and whipped with wind. Elizabeth Stride is paid sixpence for cleaning rooms in her lodging house at Flower and Dean Street. At eleven o'clock p.m., Elizabeth Stride is drunk in the Bricklayer's Arms public house, and she is with a man. John Gardner testifies, quote, They had been served in the public house and went out when me and my friends came in. It was raining very fast, and they did not appear willing to go out. He was hugging her and kissing her, and as he seemed a respectably dressed man, and we were rather astonished at the way he was going on with the woman. He and the woman went off like a shot soon after eleven. The man was described by these witnesses as being five foot eight and well dressed in a black morning suit and coat and a black peaked hat with a thick black moustache. At 11.45 p.m., a man named William Marshall sees Elizabeth stride with a man. According to Marshall, the man's arms were wrapped around Elizabeth stride's neck, and the man was, quote, a-kissing her and cuddling her. William Marshall overhears the man say to Elizabeth Stride these words, You would say anything but your prayers. Whatever Elizabeth Stride said to the man before that or after that, we do not know. All we know for sure is that she was seen walking away with him into the darkness of Whitechapel. At 12.45 a.m. on Sunday, September 30th, 1888, a man named Israel Schwartz sees Elizabeth stride with a man. Schwartz watches the man throw Elizabeth Stride to the ground. She screams three times, but as Israel Schwartz later testifies, quote, not very loudly. The man who had thrown Elizabeth Stride to the ground looked directly at Israel Schwartz and screamed, Lipsky! Lipsky was the surname of a male Jewish immigrant who had, who had been convicted of murder and executed a year before. Lipsky, in the East End of 1888, was a racial slur against immigrant Jews. 
Israel Schwartz was also Jewish, and his brief interaction with this unknown man in the streets of Whitechapel continued to reverberate throughout time and perhaps hint at a possible truth. Around this same time in the morning, a man named James Brown sees Elizabeth Stride with a man. Brown hears Stride say these words, No, not tonight, some other night. At one o'clock a.m., a man named Louis Diemschultz attempts to enter Dutfield's yard with his cart and pony. The horse stops, whines horrifically, and will go no further. It is pitch black dark, so dark that Lewis has to light a match to see anything in front of him. His little flame finds the body of Elizabeth Stride, her throat cut only a minute ago, her blood still flowing warmly from her neck into the nearby gutter. Her eyes were closed. In one of her hands, she is clutching a packet of cashews candies used to sweeten the breath. In his inquest testimony, Dr. George Bagster Phillips says, quote, The body was lying on the near side, with the face turned toward the wall, the head up the yard, and the feet toward the street. The left arm was extended, and there was a packet of cashews in the left hand. The right arm was over the belly. The back of the hand and wrist had on it clotted blood. The legs were drawn up, with the feet close to the wall. The body and face were warm, and the hand cold. The legs were quite warm. Deceased had a silk handkerchief round her neck, and it appeared to be slightly torn. I have since ascertained it was cut. This corresponded with the right angle of the jaw. The throat was deeply gashed, and there was an abrasion of the skin about one and a half inches in diameter, apparently stained with blood under her right arm. At 3 o'clock p.m. on Monday at St. George's Mortuary, Dr. Blackwell and I made a post-mortem examination. Rigor mortis was still thoroughly marked. There was mud on the left side of her face, and it was matted in her head. The body was fairly nourished. Over both shoulders, especially the right, and under the collarbone and in front of the chest, there was a bluish discoloration which I have watched and have seen on two occasions since. 
there was a clear-cut incision on the neck. It was six inches in length and commenced two and a half inches in a straight line below the angle of the jaw, one half inch in over an undivided muscle, and then becoming deeper, dividing the sheath. The cut was very clean and deviated a little downwards. The arteries and the other vessels contained in the sheath were all cut through. The cut through the tissues on the right side was more superficial and tailed off into about two inches above, below the right angle of the jaw. The deep vessels on that side were uninjured. From this, it was evident that the hemorrhage was caused through the partial severance of the left carotid artery. Decomposition had commenced in the skin. Dark brown spots were on the anterior surface of the left chin. There was a deformity in the bones of the right leg, which was not straight, but bowed forwards. There was no recent external injury, save to the neck. The body being washed more thoroughly, I could see some healing sores. The lobe of the left ear was torn as if from the removal or wearing through of an earring, but it was thoroughly healed. On removing the scalp, there was no sign of extravasation of blood. The heart was small. The left ventricle firmly contracted, and the right slightly so. There was no clot in the pulmonary artery, but the right ventricle was full of dark clot. The left was firmly contracted as to be absolutely empty. The stomach was large, and the mucous membrane only congested. It contained partly digested food, apparently consisting of cheese, potato, and farinaceous powder. All the teeth on the left lower jaw were absent. Elizabeth Gustav Dotter Stride was murdered on September 30th, 1888. She was 45 years old. She had a pale complexion, light gray eyes, and dark curly brown hair. The White Chapel murderer, alias Jack the Ripper, would take another woman's life less than an hour after he cut the throat of Elizabeth Stride. The time is now one o'clock a.m. on Sunday, September 30th, 1888, in the East End of London. Elizabeth Stride is dead, and Catherine Eddowes, has 45 minutes left to live.
Next time we meet, I will continue with the tale of the Whitechapel Women, Part 4, telling the life story of Catherine Eddowes. If you enjoy the podcast, I encourage you to leave a rating and a review if the spirit moves you. You can also like Going Dark Theatre on Facebook. If you'd like to support the podcast, get episode transcripts and other spooky things I'm working on, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens. You can subscribe for as little as one dollar a month. I am your host, Josh Hitchens. And you've been listening to Going Dark Theater. Until our next midnight together, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now... Going Dark. <laughs>